This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. 97.1 FM Talk Podcast. The Annie Fry Show YouTube live chat poll of the day is sponsored by Ruler Foods. Low prices, no coupons. Ruler Foods. That is exactly what I needed to hear. Thank God someone here knows what they're talking about. That's a- Right, you need to take the time and get the full picture. Don't get me wrong, I love the ladies. I mean, they rev my engine, but they don't belong in the newsroom. It is Anchor Man, not Anchor Lady. This is the Annie Fry Show. There are some, about a third of Americans, worried that the president doesn't have the vitality to serve out another four years. Do you think that it's time to pass the baton to a new generation of leadership, or do you think Joe Biden is the strongest candidate to defeat Donald Trump? Well, Joe Biden is definitely the strongest candidate to defeat Donald Trump. That's Hakeem Jeffries talking about uh, Joe Biden's shot at defeating Donald Trump in November. But again, this is from Alyssa Farah. This is not a Fox News question to Hakeem Jeffries. What cha- what, na- what network is she on? This was on The View. This was on The View. So Hakeem Jeffries was on The View. And so not really like friendly Trump territory. They are talking about Joe Biden's vitality. So this issue isn't a right-wing conspiracy of sorts. It's not a Fox News story of sorts. This is starting to permeate in a really measurable way all the nooks and crannies of the media. Here's more from Haki. Uh, in terms of President Biden, he's got an incredible track record of success. Right. And we just have to connect that track record of success with his vision for the next four years and make it clear that the things that he has presided over have been extraordinary from, you know, the American Rescue Plan, where we put shots in arms, money in pockets, kids back in school, rescued the economy from a once in a century pandemic and have now allowed that economy to emerge as the strongest in the world. Still more work that needs to be done, but an incredible foundation. And, and there you hear it. The, the key to the the key to the we're doing a great job storyline is compared to the rest of the world. That's that's the measuring stick for. The Democrats right now in the Joe Biden administration. And you've heard you've heard Joe Biden making these comments regularly about, you know, our economy compared to the economies of the rest of the world. Is it good that we're doing better than other economies across the globe? Yes. How do you measure it? And is that enough? Because I would like to measure the success of the United States of America based on our own potential and how much of that potential we have actually reached. Welcome back to the Andy Fry Show. We're happy to have you here on 97.1 FM Talk, St. Louis's home for conservative talk. We've got Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg 
coming up here in about 15 minutes from now. So I'm looking, we haven't had him on for a few weeks, so we're looking forward to having him back on the show. Will Scharf is going to be in the studio with us in the one o'clock hour once again for a couple segments. And one of my favorite things to do with Will Scharf is take your questions and pose them to Will and let him answer because he is very good at understanding law, of course. He is a former federal prosecutor for the Eastern District of Missouri. Um, and he can kind of help comb through and separate and organize all of these different legal issues that are facing the Biden side, the Trump side, the funny Willis side, so on and so forth. There's a lot to discuss. So Will Scharf will be in here. And if you've got questions for him, make sure you note in the YouTube live chat a uh, question for Will. Last night, Donald Trump did a town hall. And I think that every time that he goes into a, a forum like a town hall, he's sitting there on a stage surrounded by stands of people on a chair with Laura Ingram uh, across the stage, and he's answering her questions. And he also took some questions from the crowd. I think that he does well in in this setting. Brad, you were saying that you think that this is this I, is his best setting. This is his best setting. I think um, when he gets when he gets on a stage and he's doing a speech. I think he lets the crowd's energy take him away and he gets a little less disciplined, which he's like, he. I think he, what he does is he gets in this mindset, hey, we're all friends here, which, yeah, almost everybody at a, at a MAGA rally is, is MAGA hardcore. But that doesn't mean that the video and the audio, that stuff doesn't get out and then they can then use what he says and spin it in a way that isn't what he intended to say to his audience. Um, when he gets on this, like... Laura Ingram did a wonderful job of keeping him on topic. Yeah, I thought I thought she did. She has a tendency to talk over people mm -hmm. and finish people's sentences. Her transitions from if she's got a panel and she's got two people on there, especially if it's someone she disagrees with, she's such an abrupt way of pulling out of the conversation with guest A and transitioning to guest B. It's just very abrasive. I, it's, I've met her multiple times and... She, it's just her personality. It's just how she is. I think she's incredibly good at what she does, and she's very, very smart. So I love listening to her and taking it in. But she did let Donald Trump last night speak, mm -hmm. and then a few times there were some rough transitions away from Trump to wanting to get to a guest who want in, in the in the audience who was going to ask a question. But she could tell she was trying to she was trying to get it all in an hour, mm -hmm. and that that was a reflection. But I thought Donald Trump did well last night. Let's listen to some of the things. Here's him talking about. Biden. Well, he's uh, he's declined and there's no question about it. But he was always sort of semi declined. If you go back 25 years. <laughs> no, but he was not one of the smarter people. He's tried to be president many times, four times at least that they know. of. And all of a sudden, when he's most diminished, this is when he hit and he, he did it. But uh, if you look at me. I feel, and I really mean this, and I would tell you, I, and I think you tell me too, because we've known each other a long time. If I was, if I felt diminished, okay, let's use a nice term. If I felt diminished or declined in any, any way, I think I'd know it. And I think I'd say, I'm not running. Somebody should talk to him. But if he runs, he runs. So he's comparing that <laughs> idea of age being the thing that is disqualifying for Joe Biden, it isn't the age of Joe Biden. It's how you use it. It's, you've, of course, with age comes experience. We understand that. That's kind of the, the page that Joe Biden is trying to take out of the Ronald Reagan playbook a bit from Ronald Reagan's famous quip in that debate. But 
I mean, ever since that her report came out and they classified him as a well-meaning elderly man, everything after that, now ha- I've said I said this before, everything after the her report has a folder to go into in the filing cabinet in, in your brain. Yep. Now you know when he kind of stumbles going up the short stairs to go on to Air Force One, that goes in the well-meaning elderly man folder. And people outside of, you know, direct influence on politics have the opportunity to start commenting on it. No, I think they're going to get rid of him. I think they're going to move him out. They're going to force him to step down. That's what I think. If I had a guess, and it's just speculation, I'd say they're setting up Gavin Newsom for it. Now, Joe Rogan there is uh, having a conversation about what they're going to do with Joe Biden, and he's saying that they're going to get rid of them. I don't I don't know how much Will can comb through this for us. Maybe, Brad, you can text him and ask him about how much he understands about what takes place at a convention and how they can come in and say, no, no Joe Biden, Michelle Obama, no Joe Biden, Gavin Newsom. I'm actually more convinced that Gavin Newsom is setting himself up to replace Joe Biden for the Democrats in this election because of how much of a lapdog he's been for Joe Biden. Because Gavin Newsom can't come in and replace Joe Biden on the ticket and look the entire time like he was hunting to take the old, well-meaning, elderly man out. That doesn't translate. There are people who are going to have sympathy for Joe Biden. If Joe Biden does, in fact, say one day that he's stepping down and it appears to the masses that it was of Joe Biden's own decision that he's removing himself from the ticket, then that opens the door for whomever else might receive that opportunity to replace Joe Biden on the ticket. And that person needs to look like they were asked to do it, not like they infiltrated the situation and took out the old man. And Gavin Newsom, I mean, he's been kind of gross in the way that he has been propping up Joe Biden with such confidence and affection. I think the affection is what you can tell that there is like a sympathy that is laid upon Joe Biden when when Gavin Newsom is talking about him. I think it's to me obvious that Gavin Newsom knows that the possibility exists that they might need to go to the bench. And he's like, choose me, choose me, choose me. And Michelle Obama's like, do not choose me. And then they're like, but you're the only one who could win. That's 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 my thought on it. Last night, we listened to Donald Trump talking more about his VP choice, which I think is a very interesting conversation. I think it's important to remember that this Town Hall was taking place in South Carolina before the South Carolina primary on Saturday. Uh, One of them was, of course, Vivek Ramaswamy. He's made a big splash. Ron DeSantis, who's making an appearance today in South Carolina, we just found out. Um, Obviously, Tim Scott, Byron Donalds, and a a big uh, presence here for Tulsi Gabbard. Um, Very interesting. Um, And Christy Noem as well, I should say. are they all on your short list? And when can you when can we expect that you will so announce your choice? The one thing that always surprises me is that the VP choice has absolutely no impact 
it's whoever the president is. It just seems uh, I remember when Sarah Palin was actually picked and she did have a big up. And then uh, they just went after her at a level that nobody's seen. The Republicans themselves went after what they did. But you'll be a one term president because you've already served. Yeah. So you can only serve for one term, although they say you'll never leave office. I assume uh, that you'll never leave. There'll never be an ele- another say, election. Don't again. do it. He'll never leave. He's yeah. never going. Oh, these people. I'm surprised he didn't say. Remember, I'm just going to be a dictator for one day. <laughs> That's like a total Trump <laughs> troll thing to do. But he did not say that. Uh, it is important that they choose somebody who can pick up the ball and continue to move it down the field after Donald Trump's last four years in office. And Tim Scott was sitting there in the audience and Donald Trump pointed to him and they're like, a lot of people are talking about this guy. But Donald Trump didn't say Tim Scott. And they, the camera didn't immediately show Tim Scott. And I think it might have been like within the previous five minutes or so, they had a guy from the audience come up and ask a question. And Trump was like, oh, I really like that question. I really like this guy. I thought he was talking about that guy. When he, I, thought, <laughs> I thought he was pointing to the dude in this, like just doing a, <laughs> I didn't know what he was doing. I don't think it's DeSantis. I don't think it's Byron Donalds. I don't think it's going to be someone from Florida. I don't think that it benefits them in any way to be from Florida. Um, I don't think that putting Tim Scott on the ticket is going to win Donald Trump South Carolina because I think he's going to win South Carolina without Tim Mm -hmm. Scott on it. Uh, I think that Tim Scott is such a positive energy force that counteracts the sour nature that Donald Trump often brings into a room with him for people who just wake up to detest him. I, I would agree with that 1000%. That's That was always my argument for Tim Scott. He is the counterweight. Same energy, level, different kind of energy, mm-hmm. positive energy. He's also a little more calm than Donald Trump. So he brings a levelness to the table, a security to the table, where if they go, well, if something happens to Donald Trump, Tim Scott wouldn't be a bad guy to have as president. You know, it, it, that's the feeling that he brings. And, and that's always what I thought Donald Trump needed uh, to offset his campaign or to balance his campaign. It's kind of like why they picked Mike Pence whenever Trump ran the first time. His uh, Mike Pence's energy was traditional Republicanism and Donald Trump was the outsider. And so it kind of balanced the ticket. And I think that's what Tim Scott does. I don't know if Vivek Ramaswamy does but I think that Vivek's energy is good with the young people, with the young vote. Yeah, I said this to you last night. I think that Vivek Ramaswamy is a force that would be much more difficult to contain in the Trump world. I think that he would be a compelling choice for VP. I don't, I'm not sold on wanting Ramaswamy to be the president quite yet in general. Maybe four years would change that. But I really do believe that Ramaswamy is in some cases, uncontainable. And I don't think that Trump wants uncontainable. Yeah, I get what you're saying there. Donald, <laughs> Donald Trump wants to be the spotlight. He wants the energy and the spotlight and the focus on him. And an uncontainable Vivek would draw from that attention. And, it, and I don't think he would like that part of it. Well, we're going to talk a little bit more about the Trump Town Hall a little bit later in the show. We've got Will Scharf in studio with us in the one o'clock hour for a couple segments starting at 105. We also have Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg 
Coming up with us next here on The Annie Fry Show. I'm very excited to connect with him again. Also, we are giving away James Taylor tickets during this show twice. So you're going to want to stick with us. I'll tell you right now, we'll give away a set in the 1 o'clock hour and a set in the 2 o'clock hour. But you got to be listening to The Annie Fry Show and ready to call when Ryan Wiggins gives you the heads up. James Taylor tickets later on in the show. Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg when we come back. Demanding an immediate, unconditional ceasefire without an agreement requiring Hamas to release the hostages will not bring about a durable peace. Instead, it could extend the fighting between Hamas and Israel, extend the hostages' time in captivity, an experience described by former hostages as hell. Well, there's the U.N. ambassador uh, negotiating or pushing back against the ceasefire that with the U.N., talking about the importance of the relieving of the hostages that are a part of this situation between Israel and Hamas, which carries on the Ukraine-Russia conflict, carries on. Tensions continue to rise in every nook and cranny in the world, and it doesn't seem like we have our finger on the pulse of what needs to happen to alleviate tensions and yet still advocate for the good guy. In these conflicts, we go to our expert friend, Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg. He's a former national security advisor to the Trump administration, as well as the co-chair of the Center for American Security at America First Policy Institute. General, thank you for coming back on the show with us. Hi, Annie. Thanks for having me. Good to be with you. Of course. You know, I want to give you the opportunity to set the table a little bit for us. When we hear ceasefire, we've been hearing that word for quite some time from the likes of uh, Representative Tlaib, who has been calling for a ceasefire from the very beginning. And now it's being discussed at the U.N. Who is asking for what by way of a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas right now? Yeah, and it will start with that because ceasefire is foolish in any regard. And, and the vote yesterday was actually 13 to 1 with one abstention. The Brits abstained. We were the only ones who vetoed it in the U.N. Security Council. Uh, but we haven't, because that was a full ceasefire. But we've been talking about, we, this administration, has been talking about a limited ceasefire. That's wrong, too. There shouldn't be any ceasefire. I mean, here's where you get to an end state. It is unconditional surrender eradication of, of Hamas. Hamas is a terrorist organization. They have killed Americans. They have captured Americans and still hold some of them under captivity. They're not good people. And what the Israelis are trying to do is eradicate a threat on their territorial border. Hamas invaded Israel on the 7th of October, brutally massacred scores of people, and, and they are taking what they should do. Uh, is taking stock of the situation and eliminating uh, Hamas. And that means going into Rafah. And the reason why I think everybody, not everybody, people want to see a ceasefire is they realize that where the Israelis are going, Rafah is the last holdout. Once they clear Rafah, which is right on the border of Egypt, they've kind of controlled now all of Gaza militarily. And they can go systematically through it and reduce and eliminate Hamas. That needs to be done. I think anybody talking about ceasefire is foolish. Just say, nope. We look to, you, to the Israelis and say, whatever you need to get it done, do it. We're with you. Thank you very much. Call me when you're done. Mm. It seems to me like that's kind of what's been what, the the attitude has been towards Ukraine. You know, we're sending a lot of money over there. And I, I understand that even on the, the right side of the aisle, there's some disagreement as to the benefit of doing that and the necessity of doing that. 
But we seem to be very concerned about what's going on with Israel and very active and aggressive on trying to manipulate that situation. How has Hamas from the time from October 7th, when they first levied this attack against Israel, how have they fared up until this point uh, in the middle of February of the following year? When you say how well they fared, you mean militarily? Yeah, or, I, I, have we weakened? Has Israel weakened oh, Hamas? Yeah. yeah, they have. They've they've done. A, a, they're, they're not done, but they've they've. Uh, I think they've got something like twenty-eight what they call battalions, fighting units, and they've reduced about eighteen of many Israelis, and they've got to finish them all out. So they they're doing a good job. But this just this is going to take. They're going to have to be a, a real hard discussion. What happens next? What follows on from this? Because they can't continue to have the situation, Israel can't, about having a threat like this on the, on the very edge of Gaza and in, uh, on the border with Israel. Yeah. So are they doing a good job? Yeah. Uh, they are eradicating to the best they can. Hamas, the answer is yeah. Uh, but the threat is still there. It'll take a while to do it. I think that's why there's a lot of people trying to push back on Israel, getting a ceasefire, because they, they see where Israel is going. I believe Netanyahu is right. There should be no discussions until they've completed their military operations. So it's going well. It's hard. Anytime you fight in cities, if you're in the military, it's a very, very difficult operation to do it. They're losing soldiers. Uh, But I think they've got the right attitude and the right philosophy on what to do next. We're speaking with the former National Security Advisor to the Trump administration, Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg, with us here on the Andy Fry Show right now. What I mean, if if you don't eradicate them completely— you're kind of setting the tone for what's going to happen in the future, I would assume. Yeah, yeah, you do. But that's the reason why what they've done, and I think it's smart. You're seeing the Israelis going after the senior leadership as well. Um, and and that's what you need to do. It's not so much the rank and file as you kill the senior leaders. Believe it or not, it's sort of like what we did in Iraq when you had, you know, Petraeus was running the, the grand forces, and then you had Stan McChrystal, General McChrystal, running special operations forces. And their focus was in Iraq at the time, during the Iraq War, where Petraeus would do the daily fight. And, then, and every night, Stan McChrystal's teams, his special ops teams, would go out and kill leadership. And you reach a point where nobody wants to be a leader anymore. You know, thank you very much. I prefer not to do this. And I think that's where you kind of want to get to. So it's not just necessarily the ground, the foot soldiers. The importance is to eradicate the leadership. And I will tell you, based on the history of Mossad and the Israeli intelligence forces, I wouldn't put it past them that they're eventually going to take out everybody that's involved in this from Hamas. If I was a senior leader of Hamas, I wouldn't be sleeping well at night, or I'd be way far away from the the region right now. And that's how you do it. You break the back by eradicating the leadership. We did the same thing. You know, when we killed Soleimani, and uh, the Iranian three-star commander of the Quds Force, probably one of the most charismatic officers in the Iranian military, it was designed to send a message that you couldn't replace him, and they haven't been able to. They've put in a guy, the Iranians, named Ismail Ghani, who replaced Soleimani, but is nowhere the leader and nowhere is charismatic. You do the same thing with ISIS. When we killed al-Baghdadi, uh, they put a couple people in, in under ISIS to follow him. We've killed him off too. You don't even, you can't. Most people can't even name who the current leader of ISIS is because nobody really wants to be that leader. And that's really how you have to handle it. It's systematic. It's hard, but you got to do it. So when we hear people calling for ceasefire, when it's being discussed at the UN, um, what what we have seen 
by way of trying to defend civilians who the people in Hamas are standing putting these civilians in front of them and putting them in harm's way. Once again, Hamas is making that choice. What is the, what is the UN? Like, how do they, how do they come to the table and say, we need a ceasefire and also understand what it you're, is that you're saying, which is Israel's never going to be safe if Hamas continues to exist. How do they get away with sleeping? Like, how do they sleep at night saying, but we also need a ceasefire? Well, welcome to the UN. I mean, this is the way the UN is. You know, the U.N. is not an ally of the United States, never has been. You look at the non-aligned nations and some of the other nations. I mean, look at the vote, 13 to 1 against us. Really? That means not only were, were the Brit, did the Brits abstain, but that means the French weren't for us either. You know, they said, wait a second, we're all these nations supposed to be allies of ours in this desert us in, in Israel when it really needs to be done. There should have been numerous votes of no on that. And people just say, no, we're not going to go there. But they do that all of the time. That's the frustration I get when they talk a good game, but when it comes right down to it, they don't play the game as well. So that's the reason I'd say, as a United States of America, my recommendation to a president was you turn to Bibi Netanyahu and his coalition government, and you say, tell us when the job's done. Thank you very much. Mm. See ya. And we don't do that. I mean, to me, national security is hard enough without action, so at putting so many variables in it, make it really clean, make it concise, make it professional and execute. Is, is America failing to lead in this regard? Is this an administration that is failing to lead and persuade the UN? Do we, do you not even care really what the UN has to say in this regard? What's the, what's the, 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 the national home front role in trying to guide the world in its reaction to this conflict in the Middle East? Yeah, let me explain it more generally than that, because it's a laissez-faire attitude right now, this administration, how it goes after national security. Give you five areas. The five critical national security areas to me is the border of the United States, the status of the United States military, then your three regional areas, uh, Europe, uh, Ukraine, Russia, the Middle East, and the Far East. Okay, when, when it came to the border, when we left the, the last administration, when Trump left, the border was secure with remaining Mexico. Today, the border is wide open. Millions have come across. More people have come across the border illegally than in 35-plus of our state's populations. So we got a problem. You look at the military today. When we left the military, uh, the recruiting levels, they're meeting 100% uh, of the, the force structure. Today, They're made, the, the Army, Navy, Air Force is manning at 66%. They're going on incredible... Um, overreach on a lot of budgets. They're breaking the budget. It's broken system and to include the wokeness of it. When you look at the Middle East right now, when we left the Middle East, was really stable. We put out a plan called Peace to Prosperity, uh, which was to bring in the Palestinians into a peace agreement. We had set up the, the Abraham Accords. Now it's a cauldron of violence, and it's just totally broken. When you look at Ukraine uh, with Russia, when we left, Ukraine was not at war. 2014, Russia had invaded Crimea. Then under Biden, Russia's invaded Russia, uh, Ukraine as well. It didn't happen under our watch. What we did was we were the first uh, tranche of, of offensive weapons. The javelin systems were given under Trump. The place was at peace. You look at the Far East right then. Kim Jong-un was under control. Kim Jong-un is now shooting missiles. And you've got a, a, an emergent China that we thought we'd at least had some balance on. So on, on balance, when you look at those five, 
the five national security issues, when you look what we were handling, what we were doing, and, and recognizing the problems and handling that, we were fine. If you look at the current administration, it's all broken. The problem, Annie, is trying to bring this all back into a box again. It is so hard when you've got multiple problems to try and resolve these or put them back in, in, a, in a former status quo, early status quo anti-area. Uh, it's just almost right now it's almost impossible to do. And my concern is one of the, each one of these areas is a flashpoint. For example, let's just use the Middle East. What happens if a Houthi missile actually attacks a U.S. hits a warship? Mm-hmm. Nearly did, nearly hit the USS Gravely, which is a destroyer. If they had, if that Houthi missile had hit a U.S. warship and it had sunk in the Red Sea, that would have been the first capital Navy ship we had lost in wartime since World War II. Three hundred sailors on board. Wow. What would have been our reaction then? And they're still shooting them at us. So you have to ask yourself the question: Why don't you take some action that makes sure the Iranians, who are the sponsor of this, knows you do this, you're going to pay a major price, but nothing's been said out of it. And the reason I used the gravely, they had to use the last le- level of defense, which is called the phalanx seawood system, just to down that missile. It's just a matter of time till something catastrophic happens, and then where do you go? And I can show you through each level of, of the areas we just talked about where there could be a flashpoint, and then you've got a major problem you're going to have to address, and I don't think this administration is prepared for it at all. It's, it's, it feels very much like the clock is ticking on, on a whole host of issues. Before we let you go, Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg with us right now. Are those, is the status of those five areas that you are, you just very uh, wonderfully laid out for us, are those sins of omission or commission by this administration? Is it intentional or is it because they're terrible at their jobs? I, honestly, Annie, I think it's both. Okay. I think they've come in and they've said, yeah, this is kind of the way it is. Look, it is so important that national security advisors, they're really talented people, and you hope they are, and they can give good advice. You think about it, they have good historical background and knowledge. I am now absolutely convinced that the advisors that this president has are really subpar. You know, when you look at Tony Blinken, remember Tony Blinken, Senator John McCain on this floor of the Senate, said, go back and look at the testimony he had when, this is years ago, he thought Blinken, now our Secretary of State, was a threat to America. And you look at Jake Sullivan, and Jake Sullivan has made bad decision after bad decision. Example, recently in the Foreign Affairs magazine, which is a very good magazine, one of the premier magazines in national security, he said just recently, they had to revise and extend his remarks, he wrote in that magazine that the Mideast is as quiet as it's been in the last two decades. Oops, then this thing broke out with Hamas, they had to change they, had, they, had, they actually allowed him to change his remarks in the Foreign Affairs magazine. That's all public record. Just go check it out. So you ask yourself the same question. Are these people really that good? No, they're not. Is it omission and commission? It's, prob- it's, it's probably both. They're in over their heads. Man, it's embarrassing, but it's also of great consequence, which is the frightening part of it. Uh, Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg, thank you. We are always so grateful for your time. We appreciate you. Thanks, Annie. Thanks for having me. Of course. Bye-bye. The former national security advisor to the Trump administration, co-chair of the Center for American Security at America First Policy Institute. Gosh, that guy knows some things. And it's always great that he is willing to give us some of his time. Uh, great connection there. Love our relationship with the America First Policy Institute and the uh, opportunities they provide us. All right. We're going to take a quick break. Wiggins America. When we come back, the headline that he gave us is stories that might be positive but might not be. <laughs> it's just literally what he writes, right? Stories that might be positive but might not be. <laughs> I, um, yes, that's what we're going to do when we come back. And we're going to have a great time. This segment, Wiggins America, might be positive, but it might not be. 
We'll be right back. Wiggins! Oh! Wiggins! As Annie said. These as are stories. I said. As you said. As Annie said. I was quoting you. These are stories that you have to decide whether they're positive or negative. Are they a net positive or net negative? The show sheet says today, ooh, careful, Wiggins shit. America, stories that might be positive but might not be. Well, I don't know. if That, that might have been Brad. You might have been quoting Brad paraphrasing uh, Ryan there. Brad was quoting what Ryan sent in <laughs> sure, the that's group fine. DM. That's fine. Take a, take a big old dump on me. We'll just go forward. Ew. <laughs> So the first story. Highly unnecessary. Not positive. I vote not positive. (laughs) That's a terrible story. Okay. And that was the first one. That is correct. (laughs) Thank you. Yes. Uh, The second one is this. GoFundMe has been launched to help pay Trump's legal fees. The wife of, of an investor has launched a GoFundMe to help fund former President Trump's mounting legal expenses in the wake of Friday's verdict in the New York fraud case. Question maybe for Will Sharf. Can he sell one of his buildings to Elon Musk and then appeal, win the appeal, and buy it back? It's that's very. I I don't know why you couldn't. Oh, that would. I don't that know, would I see why you couldn't do that. You want to talk about heads exploding? I I mean, who could who Elon Musk can afford that? It, see, it seems like you'd almost have to sell like one of the major properties, golf courses, one of the big developments, Mar-a-Lago. To get that much money. But yeah, I mean, I see the principle of what you're saying. But I'm just saying, like, if for the amount of money that he's going to have to put up, it's going to be significant. He says he has that much cash. Mm. Uh, but why, like, sell it to sell it to a conservative-friendly investor? Figure out what's in it for them? I don't know. Maybe that's illegal, which is why I'm going to ask Will Sharf about it. And yeah. maybe maybe Will can't tell us because Will Sharf is Trump's attorney. But I'm just floating the idea. Well, I can guarantee you one thing. It's probably not illegal now, but if Donald Trump <laughs> does it, it will be illegal. They'll bootstrap a law to another law. Then Scooter, who is absolutely an internet lawyer, says the court-appointed monitor would have to approve the sale. But if it's if the sale is for the value, and they're real good at undervaluing things, mm-hmm. so maybe Elon Musk yeah. would get a hot deal in this just you know for a cool precise amount yeah it's, we, we definitely don't want to let the marketplace determine how much the value of a property is we want to let the court determine that because they're very good at that if you're on the left if you're on the left yeah if you're on the right i'd say you know free market capitalism probably wins the day regarding the gofundme thing though which is what the question is about i have thought about this like america should pitch in but then at the same time i'm thinking i want to pitch in with my vote and i do feel like in some ways shapes or form i want to vote for donald trump but i also feel like i'm doing some charity in doing so and that's such a huge amount of money i don't think you can raise it it is 355 million dollars plus as, interest as of saturday they'd raised 185,000. i just checked. getting close yeah <laughs> I, I, but i that's oh, that's saturday today's wednesday I checked right before coming in here. Still not quite a million dollars, but it's still up to eighty eight hundred seventy thousand. But it's it's not even making a dent. No. However, people are donating to it. It does seem like a let's let's pull together and make this happen kind of thing. So I thought, is that a net positive or negative? I mean, maybe it's a positive show, but I don't think it's the right thing. I would, if I were Donald Trump and I saw people doing this, I would pick some sort of charitable cause and say. Listen, I can't beat this drum enough and loud enough, but conservatives need to be seen more than they've ever been heard in the next eight months. You need to be out 
helping people in a way that doesn't involve government intervention. If you see people, if you know people are hungry, figure out a way to feed them. If you see people who are unclothed, figure out a way to clothe them. If you see people who need help, figure out a way to help them. Because we can do all of this stuff without waiting for the right guy or girl or whatever to get elected to a position because nothing happens until they do something. Go show up and help somebody right now. And if I were Trump, I would be saying, find a cause. Pick a cause. Pick pick a lane. Veterans. Children. Whatever it might be. Pick a lane. One that is down the center where everybody can agree, okay, we need to help children. We need to help fund adoptions. We need to help uh, veterans who are on the street get the care that they need. Let's take all of this money that you want to give to me. Let me fight these battles. They're coming after me, and I'm going to fight them every step of the way. What I need you to do is go be seen. That would be of great political capital. And then just get, like, matching shirts. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like a winner to me. We'll go with that. Do you guys think it's a good idea, GoFundMe? Uh, To raise money for Trump? No, I don't like that. I mean, I think there's a statement to be made there, but I like kind of where you're going with that. It gives Trump the opportunity then to turn it into a positive for him by saying, hey, no, I don't need that. Give it where it's needed. Leah? I'm going to say no. Yeah. That was my first thought. Okay. I say yes. I think that it's a, a it's still good. Um, I, it, it's a hard sell to say, yeah, you're basically donating to this and it's going to end up in the coffers of New York. Because that's ultimately what's happening. Yeah. But you want to talk you, about fraud? Jeez, you kidding me? Uh, because of today's YouTube live chat poll, I wanted to bring this one up. Okay, Gen Z is rejecting dating apps to meet romantic partners organically. Oh, I think this is where the poll came from. It oh did it? Okay. So lots of contact, but not lots of intimacy is what they're saying. Their whole life is mediated, said one psychologist. They have lots and lots and lots of contact, but not lots of intimacy. And they go into several <clears throat> Gen Zers who are dating. They just say their last names. It says Rodriguez hopes to meet people through day-to-day activities such as schools and clubs. It's important to her to start as friends before considering a romantic relationship. So the question is? The question is, is this a net positive or a net negative that we've even had to get here? Because this seems like a positive What's, movement. What do you mean this? But that we've had to get to the point where people are having to choose to not do online dating very deliberately. Yeah, it's interesting to compare it to when online dating first became a thing. It was super nerdy and like yes. like it was like it was posed as if you met your significant other online it was like the last resort. And it was something you didn't say a whole lot. Correct. And I know people in my life and in my family who met online and they have and they met online before it was mm-hmm. at, at probably the mm-hmm. standard and they have the best relationships and they're the best people. And I see why they went online because they were sick and tired of doing maybe the bar scene or the college thing was not really materializing in anything where you were finding someone who wanted the same thing that you wanted. Uh, so I don't have an opinion either here nor there on digital dating or in-person dating. But the lack of intimacy, even in friendships, yeah. mm-hmm. is a huge, huge thing I believe, for this upcoming generation. I want to talk about that more in the 2 o'clock hour. Okay. Do you have any strong opinions on that, Brad? Um, I think it's a good thing that that the newer generation is moving back to the old way of dating. I think that, like you said, there's a way of of um, developing that intimacy. The other th- side of it is, too, is, is like catfishing became a real problem. Mm. And it's People re- listening don't all know what that means. So we'll, yeah. get, we'll revisit that in a second as well. 
Leah, any thoughts real quick before we break? We can wait till the two o'clock. <laughs> two o'clock hour. Yeah. Okay, hard to squeeze all. I'm that gonna in say it. this is a net positive, and I'll, I'll leave it there. Okay, let's let's revisit it. Two o five. A reminder: James Taylor tickets giveaway, both in the one o'clock hour and in the two o'clock hour. A two for today, and we'll sharp in studio when we come back. Get more at 971talk.com.